This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Couchbase, a modern, multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase Developer Portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources, including the Couchbase Developer Community Forum. To get started developing on Couchbase, visit couchbase.com slash .NET rocks. That's couchbase.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're live at NDC Manchester Online. Ian Cooper is here, but... Uh, Except for that part where none, none of us are in Manchester? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's all relative. Somebody's in Manchester. We did a road trip stop in Manchester and play, and actually did the show in a... Uh, in a club, um, nightclub. A club, yeah. In a yeah. club. It was the strange, one of the more stranger sets we've ever done, but it was a lot of fun. Because Manchester is known for two things, live music and football hooliganism. Yes. And we saw both of them. Remember the day we were leaving, there was yeah. like a two o'clock game. We got to the train station at 10 in the morning and there was beer everywhere. Everywhere. Just the people have been drinking since eight in the morning because clearly the pubs open early when it's going to be an early game. And yeah. uh, it was it was a state of affairs. And, you know, you don't wear the wrong colors in Manchester. Oh, yeah. You know, you, it's like gang warfare. You'll get, you'll get a wedgie, an atomic wedgie. <laughs> uh, they'll find pieces of you in a dumpster. I don't know. It's Manchester, man. Things get serious sometimes. And football is very serious. Right. But anyhow, let's, uh, we, let's start how we always do with a little thing we call better know a framework. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, uh, this is pretty cool. Uh, go to abp.io with your browsers now. This is an open source web application framework for ASP.NET Core. And hmm. why do you think you might need a framework for a framework? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Why would I need that? It is a good question. So just to read... From the website, ABP Framework is a complete infrastructure to create modern web applications by following the software development best practices and conventions. So it sounds fairly benign and boilerplate, yeah. but it's only missing of, the word paradigm and it would and it'd be bingo, right? Actually, like, the word boilerplate is really what it's all about. So it replaces the popular boilerplate template project. With oh. their own, which has okay. some things in it that uh, help you. So it's microservices ready. It's multi-tenancy ready. And it even has a Blazor startup template. Um, uh, helps you follow DDD uh, in, in the dry principle. Like it, it's some really good stuff. And it's, of course, open source and free to use. So it's a, it's a good uh, thing to check out, I think. Cool. Sounds like we should do a show on it. We should. Yeah, and, and it's an open source project, right? That's on GitHub, so you yeah. can take a look at everything, right? Awesome, so dude. That's what that's I fine. got, Richard. Thanks. Who's uh, talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show fourteen fifty eight. That's right, going back to the before times. 
July of 2017 is when we published the show, but we actually recorded it in June at NDC Oslo with one Ian Cooper. Maybe you heard of him. Never heard of him. And I entitled the show The .NET Renaissance because that's what Ian wrote in his blog posts. It was one of those things. I I think we'd interviewed him maybe four months before. Normally, I don't I have people on maybe once a year or so. But it was one of those things where like, I read the blog post and, call, and I pinged Ian. It's like, oh, we need to do a show on this. Because he was talking about something I'd certainly been aware of, which was that, you know, Microsoft had kind of turned a corner. .NET had, was, was ascendant again. This very mature framework had rebooted itself and there right. was this amazing community emerging around it. A really fun show. And I recommend it to you listen, even though it is, you know, pushing four years old now. Uh, and this particular comment is actually referring to me. This is from Chris Zink and admittedly written four years ago. And Chris says, uh, Richard made this comment during the show, and I have to correct it. He mentioned that software engineering is not a profession yet. In Canada, at least, software engineering has been a profession for almost 20 years. It is a regulated professional engineering discipline. All of the professional engineering licensing requirements apply to anyone wishing to call themselves a software engineer. Again, in Canada, you must be a licensed professional engineer. Use the title engineer. You cannot legally call yourself a software engineer unless you're also a PNG. As well, there have been accredited a Bachelor of Engineering Software Engineering programs given by Canadian universities for a couple of decades. The point to all this is that the profession does exist for software engineering. There are mandatory CPD requirements, ethics, professional practice guidelines, and so on that define a mature profession. Most provinces have licensing paths that allow a current practitioner to get licensed with some effort. The regulating bodies are responsible for regulating the profession, and they are working hard to get practitioners licensed. The engineering regulators are doing this because there are major public safety issues around many aspects of software. As an industry, we need to understand this and support the profession. And if you're looking for more information, you can go to engineerscanada.ca. And they do have a white paper specifically on what constitutes software engineering. And I have been doing some reading. Uh, and we're in this interesting state where here's this body that is identifying engineers and asking for qualifications and so forth. But largely, they are still kind of pitching this to the provinces. So, uh, you know, similar to the way the United States work, where the state sort of makes certain rules, the actual regulation of software engineering and all kinds of engineering is at a provincial level. So the rules are different from province to province. And uh, they... There's not really any enforcement around any of this right now. So they have the, the ideas, but they're, they're still very much pressing against, can we put more legal constraints around this? What does this it look like? I mean, the United States is, you know, anybody can use any term for and, and just consider it a marketing term, you know, like pain reliever, for example, could just be a marketing term. It may not relieve any pain at all. Oh, no, it's just what we call it. Yeah. Well, there are, and there are rules. It's just, again, a question of enforcement. Yeah. Right. The Federal Trade Commission does have very specific things about generally they enforce stuff like, can you call it bourbon if it's in Tennessee? Well, yeah, that's a federal thing. <laughs> and yes, yeah. yes, you can, but only if it doesn't do any carbon filtration. Look at right. you, Jack Daniels. Separate yeah. issue. So, uh, I mean, Chris, <laughs> great point. Uh, and uh, I have to change my pitch on this whole issue because obviously mm. there are groups getting together to get more serious about what engineering looks like. And I, and, you know, the same rules apply in engineering. Typically, there's only one PNG per project. Like, if you're talking about constructing a bridge, there's lots of people involved in that. But not all of them need to be civil engineers. Not all, and much less have their PNG, their, their, their stamp, so to speak. 
So we could see a time when certain classes of software are built that way. And one would argue that some software is already starting to be built that way because, you know, more than ever, it's becoming abundantly clear that uh, software is running the world and we really ought to have some authorities around uh, managing all of that. Yeah. So, Chris, thank you for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there as well. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And you should definitely follow us on Twitter to keep up with .net Rocks. Uh, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Hey, send us a tweet. You know, you can use the boilerplate tweet template. We don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to .NET Rocks, Ian Cooper. He is a polyglot coding architect in London, a founder of IDNUG, speaker, tabletop gamer, geek. He is also tattooed, pierced, and bearded, the gov on at Brighter Command. Welcome back, Ian. Hey, that's that's LDNUG, actually the London.net user group, which I'm... Uh, I get it, yeah. Dylan and I and some other co-conspirators run. Not to be I confused with the really London.net user group in Canada, who we occasionally get some uh, clashes with in terms of uh, our events uh, on Twitter. Okay. And that's London, Ontario, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Little London. Not because no nobody in, hey. in Canada called it New London, because who would do that? Nobody who would do that. Who would do that? I know. We're the littlest <laughs> London. I guarantee it. We're the littlest new London. Um anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. My font didn't really differentiate between a capital I and a lowercase L. So I'm j i am was just reading. Oh good. But it's good to have you back, sir. Um we always That's too long. Always learn something from you, no matter what we talk about. So, what's on your mind lately, sir? So, uh, yeah, I was talking today about um, test-driven development. And I mm -hmm. I gave a famous talk about that in 2014 at NDC Oslo, which um, I think was probably one of uh, NDC's highest-rated videos until Dylan stole my crown with his art of code. Um, <laughs> but, I think I had uh, something to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so I guess what it's about is this. Um there's kind of a fork that seemed to happen uh, in in the way in the history of kind of practice of test-driven development, and this is the way I think about it. Originally, at some point, the people like Kent Beck, Martin Fowler, they're all working at the Chrysler Corporation in um, in the US, and there they come up with some great uh, practices: XP, TDD, etc. And it's clear, I think, for people who don't necessarily understand when they when they produce the, the, the practices and they and they publish them, they've been doing them for some time. Uh, and you know, someone sort of said we should we should share this with the world. Um, and Ken's book about TDD is thus, if you read it, it's not really a great beginner's book because it's actually him explaining a practice that he's been doing for quite some time, and it actually has quite a lot of detail. It's more like a kind of masterclass. But one of the problems with with the book is what happened is that people who who kind of read it and didn't really necessarily get exactly what he was focusing on, um, brought in a lot of uh, techniques from a much more classical approach to testing, so unit testing, integration, system testing. So unit testing, of course, is either I take a module, I test what is inside that module um, in a kind of black box sense usually, um, and in order to do that, what I do is I say, well, any other modules it talks to, I'm going to substitute those with some kind of dummy. 
Um, then I'll integration test, I'll take two modules and I'll get them to basically talk to each other. And then I'll finally do a system test. And the idea is to localize where the defect's happening. Right? So the first one doing black box testing. If I've got a unit under test and some dummies, I know that if there's a failure, it's the unit causing the failure. If I'm doing integration, it's the integration of these two tested units that must be wrong. Right? But that has really nothing to do with test-driven development. And unfortunately, what happens is really that... Um, People in common parlance, when they talked about TDD, they, they spoke about writing unit tests. And really, that wasn't what anyone was doing. But what happened is that bore all this baggage with it. People said, hey, we should isolate this thing. We should use substitutes around it. Um, so they created this model where we, we took a class, for example, and we said, hey, well, that's, that's obviously our unit. Let's substitute everything around it then, and let's basically inject all of its dependencies because um, we can't use those. That'd be violating unit testing, right? Well, in it, we can do an integration test later, and that'll test us talking to real things, maybe a system test. It led to this growth of mocks. And we were in, it also led to the growth of a constructor that had quite often a huge number of interfaces it was taking in a type language or even, you know, um, uh, duct type types, basically, in, in, in a dynamically type language. Uh, and these constructors already grew. And what happened particularly in... Uh, 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 Statically type languages was we said, well, we've got all these interfaces that I depend on, um, and this object may satisfy that, but it's got all these interfaces it depends on. And we come up with these graphs of objects. So when we had to have IOC containers um, kind of built uh, so that we could essentially realize these object graphs at runtime. Um, and this whole direction, I believe, was a complete mistake. We talk about, you know, null being basically the kind of million dollar mistake. This is a whole path that, you know, if we could take time back and say, hey, maybe if we got to history and we changed the fork when we went towards unit testing and actually went to what the native practitioners began to call developer or programmer testing. So you can go and look at what's called the CT Wiki. CT Wiki is a repository of old school agile knowledge from the beginnings of XP and TDD. And it defines what developer or programmer test is. And it says essentially it's a test where effectively I'm going to test some behavior of my software. And I'm going to do that um, by essentially make, doing the smallest possible change that I can make in order to implement some of the acceptance criteria. And that its localization is simply um, in the event of my test break, that last edit I did, which would be quite small, that's what caused that failure. And I should either revert it, hopefully, uh, purists always revert it, or maybe debug it for a bit and see if I, get, if I can get unstuck and then effectively move back. And that path doesn't really use mocks. It doesn't really need IOC containers. And it's a very different approach. And it's, it's where people struggle with, so red, green, refactor, right? Red, green, refactor, how does that work, right? If you've done all your thinking about design up front, such that you can inject all these interfaces that describe the collaborator objects, you must have in your head conceived of some kind of class hierarchy, etc. right? You probably over-designed um, if what you do is actually say, hey, this is behavior, I need to get under test, how am I going to implement that, right? And so the example Kent uses throughout the book is sort of a money class, and he's got this thing which says, well, you know, I want to basically take two money types of different currencies and add them together and get results in the first currency. That's a typical kind of requirement he's building with TDD, not just basically a method on the class. And so what Kent would say is, well, here's this behavior. So that's why Dan North later came along and said, hey, this is, maybe we should call this behavior-driven development instead, right? Um, but that behavior, you would say, well, what's the simplest thing I could do, the smallest amount of code I could write to move one step forward towards that, right? 
And you essentially say, well, write a red test to prove that fails. A green test, which is the the, the, the noddiest implementation I can think of. You're explicitly asked to do something horrible, like go to Stack Overflow and say, let's cut and paste that in, right? Great. Now, now I'm getting closer Nobody to my does that. that. Yeah, all Nobody the stuff that, that we, we yeah. say, oh, you know, those, those developers that do that, that it, I guess you should do all that. Do all that and, and make it get to pass as soon as possible. Then you kind of step back and you go, well, that code looks awful. I can't show that to any of my friends. Um, hey, but I could do some refactoring now. What I could do is actually make that, now I know effectively what the algorithm is that I want to do, I could refactor that, right? And that's when design emerges. Um, and actually mm. at that point, because that's under test, I could break out classes and that without new tests, right? And the idea really is that they're, they're private, or they're inside the module and they're export depending on language. So in, in something like C Sharp, they'd be internal and not public. And you'd be saying, well, no one should be calling those. That's how I implement it. And I could, because it's refactoring in a couple of test time, Decide, well, that was a really bad idea. I'm going to throw all that away and redo it, right? So it gives you that kind of ability to keep changing your implementation, which is the promise of refactoring. And that gets lost. It reminds me of a joke, Ian, that a, uh, a tester walks into a bar, orders a beer, orders zero beers, orders 9,999,999,999 beers, orders a lizard, Orders minus one beer and orders the the first real customer walks in and asks where the bathroom is and the bar bursts into flames, killing everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's not really about testing, right? It's more about designing an API. That's really what TDD is behind and step by step controlling scope so that you don't write speculative code. And actually, if you do it this way, you do get that promise of self-describing examples. Mm. And, and I've been kind of on this warpath a bit because I feel that we've got this direction which isn't giving people the results that they want, that is very expensive to do, um, that ends up with these test suites that are very fragile and then led to people right. going, TDD's not working. Um, and I'm like, that's because you're not really doing TDD. Now, all your tests can pass and it could still blow up in production. Yeah. Yeah. So unit tests and integration tests and that are, are, are still valuable, right? They're still a valuable technique. It's just a different technique, right? And I often say to people, you know, when you're thinking about that, things like the test pyramid, right? There's a certain sweet spot for doing test-driven development, really, or quite often around what is the problem space, the domain that you're actually uh, addressing. There are other spaces like my user interface um, where test-driven development is not the technique you're looking for. But testing, maybe unit testing and test after approaches, maybe are, right? End to end testing. Yeah. And what we need to do yeah. is clarify exactly what TDD is and what problems it's good at solving. And so that's part of our mix of kind of QA tools that we want to use. And we should understand our tools better. It's the age of problem, right? Effectively, you know, if I've only got a hammer, I'm going to be banging those screws in, right? And, and really, testing is a suite of tools. TDD is the hammer, and it's great for nails, but sometimes I've got screws, and I need my screwdriver. And we need to get a little bit, stand back and say, what are the tools I've got, and which one's going to get me the, get me the best result? And there are two real results you're looking at. One is, I want to get feedback now on decisions I'm making as I write code, and that's basically TDD. Or, hey, I want to protect my software against regression, against blowing up in production, uh, production, and that's more the classical kind of unit test, integration test kind of model that, you, that you've got going on. Um, we need to get a bit more sophisticated about that conversation, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the the challenge here then is to set an order of execution. Like we've always been 
pitched on this idea that we we focus on the testing would make us think more clearly mm. about what those APIs should look like. That that that's the right would do it. Is that just putting yourself in the customer's shoes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, generally, what you should be working with is some kind of user story where there's customer defined acceptance criteria. You don't need tools mm-hmm. like Cucumber to do that. You can just be doing that in your X unit style TDD. And really, what you need to say is, hey, well. I, I need, I'm going to test for something. What, what, what is, what is it I'm actually trying to achieve here, right? So Ken's mm-hmm. example, he's trying to achieve building a class that will support money. Um, and he's trying to look at what are, what are the acceptance criteria? I need to be added if it's in two different currencies. Great. That's a criteria. Let's have a test that shows mm-hmm. me how I do that, right? And that's what you're really driving towards. But you're also exploring how to make that SDK usable and effective and, and simple. So I do, I teach a bit of a workshop on One of the examples I do is game of life. And one of the things I've, I, and I make the, I make, I make them, I, I, I shot, well, I shot a video of me doing it both styles, right? Doing it unit testing and doing TDD. And it's very clear the difference. In the one that I do a kind of more unit testing pr- approach, I end up with a quite overcomplicated kind of design. Whereas the one that I do TDD, I end up going, you know what? I just need to pass in this kind of array that represents basically game of life. And my tests are so much clearer. You can read the tests and you see exactly how the transformation is occurring between the two game boards that I've got. Uh, and that is part of what you're, what you're doing. You're saying, hey, how, if I was a developer, how would I want this to work? How, how to make this clear what, what, what the pit of success is for using this, this particular um, API that I'm writing? Right? Um, right, and too right. often it's more, hey, here are all the weeds and the details. And by the way, go and look at this documentation because you're never going to be able to figure out how to use all the weeds and the details without all this documentation. So it's really about this. Well, and isn't that just the kind of a punt? It's like, look, I'll put all the things in here. You figure out what you want. I think so sometimes, yeah. I think I think we as developers are inclined to say, um, hey, I could, maybe this will happen or maybe that will happen. And I think it's a really – I think it's an attempt to be kind. It's like, well, that could come up. I better I better make sure that's that's kind of solved, Right. And you're, and you're thinking of all these possible things and you think, well, I'll get payback at some point in the future because this will come up and someone will go, hey, that's really great. He's solved that already. But the reality is quite often what happens is that comes up and you're kind of like, yeah, we had a stab at that. It wasn't quite right. Um, yeah. But it needs to just get straight back to the whole Yagni. Like you ain't yeah. going to need it. Figure out the basic case. Get the basic case out there. And then use feedback to decide what the set next case, the next version is going to look like. Yeah, it, it pretty much is. And but even at the level of writing my own code, right? That's what you, you want fast feedback. The idea is the test should be fast because what, the reason for mm-hmm. this requirement about speed is I really shouldn't be interrupting my development flow very much, right? I should be writing that looks like it. Do a small change, okay? That seems to be making progress. Do a small change, um, and it really helps people like, quite often to work in that kind of really tiny increment sure. fashion. So I've only got to have so much in my head, right? Yeah, I, I managed to justify spending a lot of money on testing infrastructure to keep test times under fifteen minutes. Mm. My, my theory being that was as much time as it took for the for the de- dev to stand up, declare himself a god, and then walking walk over to get some coffee. And by the time he got back with his coffee, all of, all of the errors were there, mm. right? All, all the problems. Because what, what we were finding was they still stood up to call themselves a god when it got coffee. But, you know, the tests were gonna, weren't going to run to the end of the day like we were, you know, doing those kinds of models. So, they worked on something else. And by the time they got the error reports back, the code was out of their head anyway. Yeah, particularly, I, mean, I used to find if you were running CI suites back in the day and you had this whole kind of model where it was too slow and you run them overnight – then, then it created what I would always call plausible deniability, 
Whereupon yeah, the next yeah, morning yeah. we go, that wasn't, wasn't my change. Yeah, it worked on my desktop. Yeah, and I used to say yeah, that yeah. everybody used to play this game. I used to like, pin the tail on the donkey. Somebody's job was effectively in the morning to go around figuring out exactly whose change had caused the problem. And then sure, kind of like you say, okay, you fix it. Um, which is kind of an enormous waste of effort, really. But if you could give the people the feedback now, they'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah. I can't escape this, right? Well, and now there's no excuse. We have the cloud, right? Like you can distribute a huge uh, this huge test suite across a bunch of servers for a few minutes and then tear it all back down again. So it actually doesn't cost that much. But that you checked in this code and minutes later, these are the errors we got back. Mm. Like it's just it short circuits that whole debate. Yeah, it's my, and it, I think effectively you're still in the same context, right? That's the other big thing. I mean, you know, yeah. we talk yeah. about developers and you know not interrupting them because it, it kind of I, I, I guess the way I perceive it is. I've built up a model in my head and it doesn't take a lot for that model to have to be ejected from my memory to do with something else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have to rebuild that whole model. And there's a certain point of I don't want you to have to eject that model between testing runs. So, you know, I don't yeah. want you to really think, ah, oh, maybe I'm going to go away and do this other thing that I've got on my to-do list and I'll start writing that email, uh, that I'm, document. And I'm, I'm thinking of a story from a project that I'm working on. We had this issue where you know, this null reference exception was happening and it wasn't the code that was expecting that to not be null. It was the code that was sending the null that was the problem. And so the developer uh, just said, you know, just did a test for null. And if there was, if it was null, just, eh, we'll just ex- exit, right? Yeah. Just return. And, and then, you know, we couldn't, find the real problem which was that this thing over here that was calling it was passing null so it's it's good to to not do null checks sometimes especially when you're developing you know or at least do something constructive when it is null but it'll those things will help you find the real problems right but yeah. it's just, it was just an interesting thing that came up yeah fail faster sometimes like i think you know underrated we can we can swallow and catch stuff because we don't know what to do with it, right? And actually, a better thing to do is to mm-hmm. crash at that point because yeah. at least yeah. then we're so fail silently, like on on <laughs> error resume next. Like that, that's just evil. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You just, I'll People just don't absorb even remember your failures. That, yeah. yeah. that is like <laughs> remember <laughs> what that is. Yeah, roll the roll the dice and You're hope. You're off, bad. <laughs> <laughs> but Richard's I, bringing up VB. I do think yeah. yeah, dragging out old languages, mm-hmm. right? I do think we're in a time now where we're starting to think, think that, that being opinionated, right? That this is how I work. This is what I do. And, mm-hmm. and no secrets, like the failing loudly, making it very clear. This is what made me unhappy. It makes for better software. Software is too complicated as it is. Everything that can be expressive and, and out and forthright, so forth. That's you spend a lot less time chasing these ghosts around. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this. It's a slight tangent, but in relation to you know running software in containerized environments like Kubernetes, where you know in some cases um, when you get a sort of transient error or something you're talking to, like you know, I work on an open source library, um, Brighter, which deals in messaging. And there's this whole question I ask myself: is you know should, how sophisticated should we should we be at uh, coping with the loss, say, of a broker and sitting there continually retrying, etc. Because the trouble with that is it can be very hard to observe that from outside. Whereas if I just crash, then the you know someone writing the scheduler can say, okay, great, well I'll pause and restart a new a new uh, a new instance, right, to, to replace that one. And 
that's this problem where, you know, by being quiet and silent about the failure, I'm thinking that, oh, I'm helping the operator. But in fact, actually, right. I'm not because no. he can't now observe the error and take, take a suitable action for, uh, right. for me. Right. right. Can't reproduce it. Yeah. 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 You thought you were being clever. Yeah. But if he looks at his monitor, right, you know, I'm still running, right? But maybe I'm not doing anything yeah. useful. <laughs> but it's in a state that's corrupted. You yeah. Know? So you really do have to. Do so. Hey, uh, guys, hold that thought while we pause for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl. That's Richard. Hey. Hey, and uh, that's Ian Cooper. We're talking about TDD and the the problems that it that uh, have uh, plagued us about this. And Ian, it's interesting to hear somebody say, you know, I think we got it all wrong, and uh, there are better ways to to test your application. And I'm concerned that you know the alert listener missed that part where you said. Now, unit tests are still important. Integration tests are still important. So, I guess what I'm saying is. What is the prescriptive kind of fix for this, you know, TDD uh, behavior that uh, that people have been doing now for years? Yeah, sure. So I think the thing is this, right? Um, decide that you are in a position where a test-first approach is going to help you, mm. and then really the context for that is I am I have a requirement that's reasonably well defined. I've got some, say, user stories or use cases with acceptance criteria. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a domain problem, usually. It's a problem basically I'm going to deal with in terms of entities, et cetera, rather than technology. And I want to essentially explore how I write code that solves that kind of domain problem, right? And then I focus my efforts on saying, okay, um, let's take the simplest kind of thing I could do to move towards that criteria. Quite often, it's essentially something that says, you know, um, uh, I'll return zero in this in this condition, right? I try a couple of lines of code, get started, and then you say, "Well, what's the what's the simplest move I could move make towards the you know maybe initializing uh, a kind of base level uh, thing?" So, taking the example of money, right, that Kent was using, it'd be like saying, "I need to create a money class that basically has kind of zero value." Great, and I can test it at zero. Awesome, that seems like a good start, right? And then maybe now I think, well. Maybe I need to set a value to it and test it still got that value. Okay, maybe I should add two of them, right? And you and you build up kind of that functionality of acceptance criteria towards um, getting something. But each time you're trying to express a behavior, right? Separate. Uh, and, and when you do that, really try and follow a red-green factor and, and really try and avoid using any kind of mocks, right? Generally speaking, you know, you can work in different architectural styles like um, I tend to recommend ports and adapters and quite often mm. now rephrase as clean architecture because it cleanly separates, here's my domain, around that is things that basically do I.O. So I can focus on that thing and I can add I.O. later, right? And then I can I, I can use TDD to do that. It's a sweet spot. And then when I'm saying, hey, I'm going to test my UI or I need to test actually how it access this database, say, you know, hey, is that the best tool in the box? Maybe actually unit testing this is, is fine or even just you know, testing it in, by, by running it, right? And having a look and saying, okay, I've had a look at that, right? 
Uh, and so if you do things where you're testing by looking at just running it, then you're really a problem you're solving now is regression, right? You're saying, hey, I need to write some tests to make sure that keeps running, right? So I can write some tests that, that, that just check that's going to run still. I'm not exploring that. I don't need to explore that. So my, my common example of this is a lot of code where I'm saying, oh, well, I've got this idea of an entity that I need to save to the data store, right? And generally, in a lot of cases, all I'm doing is probably I've got some data access object wrapper, and I'm just going, you know what? Uh, I need to get the docs up. I just implement that. There's no real exploration. There's no real kind of like, how does this actually work? It works when effectively I save stuff to the database, right? And I could, I could check, I could label check that as I work through it. Once it works, I go, okay, that's the working code. I need to, ch I, I write a little test. Now you can use XUnit tools to do that for you. That, you know, they're, they're agnostic to what that, the approach you're using. And kind of you can do that there, right, to check that. Maybe it's doing a UI, right? You can use, I think one of you were mentioning to me earlier, it's kind of snapshot tools. And I did have a colleague who wrote one yeah. of those where effectively you're saying, hey, compare this UI to the, to the image basically and see whether we've moved bar buttons and, you know, around into the wrong place. And they've shifted a few pixels to the left. And that isn't the requirement. A good tool for that is Playwright for .NET, W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, yeah, that, that's a good end-to-end -end tester for, for UI. And I, I like that because you can basically tell it, you know, fill out this form right here, push the button, wait until some ID shows up on the page, and now we can test that. And you can actually write a script that goes through the whole thing and hopefully gets the re desired uh, result. And all I need to do is just bear in mind, you know, that's not really what – I'm not doing TDD, but I'm doing no. I'm doing QA, and that's perfectly fine. Both of yeah. these things are equally valuable, right? I mean, mm. there's this notion called the testing pyramid that kind of says – Hey, I can draw a pyramid right in the bottom is unit testing and at the top is essentially, um, you know, manual testing. And the, as I go from up, I'm getting, it takes me longer to get a result. Um, uh, and those results are less easily repeatable. So obviously, because, you know, I would prefer to get repeatable results, um, that are fast. I might want to put a lot of my effort into getting a lot of the problems I can solve with TDD, solve with TDD. But there are other things that TDD is just not the right thing to solve, and you use the crep techniques for those, right? I mean, we all know, we were joking earlier about, you know, someone walking to the bar, right, eventually, but actually, you know, shipping code to a small number of users will find you things that you just never expected. Yeah, and you look there yeah. going, but why would you do that? Um, you know. Well, there's, but there's also sets of personalities that really like that work. I mean, mm -hmm. mm. I also think... That's not a replacement for QA. It's in addition to QA and it takes time and cultivation. Mm. You know, I, th I think back on like Windows created the slow ring, fast ring thing. And what really happened was most people just put it on a secondary machine and never looked at it. Didn't actually take it out for enough exercise. So they weren't getting the useful feedback until they actually pushed patches into production, so to speak, and broke things. So it, you, you've really got to evaluate these different strategies. Like, I kind of think we're abusing our customers via the cloud with this, where we're not really finishing software. We're just sticking it out there and letting them finish it for us by forcing them to give us feedback by crashing the app. Because uh, they expect, you know, version one, there's going to be some errors. Oh, but, you know, we can get. <laughs> it's an interesting one because I, cause I, I mean, I, when I started my career, I shipped disks. Right? I used to work in yeah. some medical software and ship disks. And I can remember a fault that I'd, I'd added to the software um, uh, that shipped, and we had to ship all the disks again. And 
I was a young junior developer and, and my boss to teach me a lesson sent me down to the department to help me pack, make me pack all the discs that I had to, had to be resent out <laughs> so that I would learn <laughs> by doing basically that particular job quite how much they didn't want to keep We're doing older that. and more mature now. We don't ship discs. We slip discs. <laughs> nice. so. Yeah, very true. Um, <laughs> but but I, I mean, I think the thing is the, the whole the purpose of, of talking about things like testing and production, of course, is that we can't predict everything anymore, right? No. And, and it's more saying... When you when you do release something, uh, there's sufficient complexity that you're going to have to accept that the first thing that you release is probably broken. That's what it, to me. That's what it means. More testing and production it doesn't mean hey, actively don't do any QA, just ship the mm. thing and, and let it explode. It's more accept that by the time it gets to production, you're still testing. Yeah, you'd hope that some group of customers are going to be able to successfully use it. Yeah, and that you slip that new version out bit by bit. Right. So you don't break mm. everybody at once and create yeah. total chaos. But it's almost like do a release, listen. Get that feedback. Oh, everything's going well right now. Add a few more and wait until the screams start and then stop <laughs> shipping it. Yeah. Start dealing with the screams. And what's your what's your advice, Richard? Never ship um, 6 p.m. Friday night. Yeah. Well, geez, don't <laughs> ship any. Don't change anything on a Friday unless you like working weekends. Well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> right before vacation. Ship it. Yeah. <laughs> Out of here. Thanks for playing. See ya. Phone doesn't. You wonder why I went to Nepal? Phones don't work there. <laughs> like, remember my, my out of office message? It literally gave you a lat long to send the helicopter. If you really right. need me, this is where you need to I'm go. I'm climbing a mountain uh, in yeah. Nepal right now. Now, and I'm and I'm willing to be interrupted if I get video of you picking me up in a helicopter. That's acceptable. But otherwise, no. Yeah, the um, uh, friends don't do that to friends, sort of thing. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. But I I think there's a respect angle on this that you you're right. We're never going to test for all scenarios, but we should test for some, and then really being careful with who you break and how you break them. You know, we, we, we got into a situation at Strange Loop where there were some customers that wanted the leading ad features really, really bad, that they were willing to take risks. And they went on this beta program, so they got those bits first. And there were other customers just like, I, I will accept a modest performance improvement. Do not break my site. Right? And, they, you know, they were sort of in the conservative ring. Mm. So part of this was just listening to where the customer is at, giving them that choice. And, and building our deployment practices around those things so we could really learn. Well, I think, I think the thing, I mean, you're talking about, you know, um, licensing of engineers and, and, and the risks that one of your correspondents was talking about, the risks that effectively that we get from a world that's continuing running on software. And I think that we, yeah, you know, we, we, we underestimate, uh, that we could, we can make people's lives, you know, quite miserable, um, because a service they depended on is not going to work for them for the next, you know, few hours. Well, or you can flat out kill them. Ask the folks who got on the Boeing 737 mm. Max. Like, there were some hardware decision failures there, too. But it was also a lot of software. Mm -hmm. Like, no kidding. Or, the fa you know, I'm going to just keep picking on Boeing. The Starliner spacecraft that didn't make it to its correct orbit because literally a time and date problem. Like, straight software mistakes. And only after it was up in orbit did they do the rest of the testing to realize, oh, if it continues on this path, it's going to be destroyed. And they managed to fix the software enough to recover the spacecraft. But still. That was Jordy LaForge that fixed it, I think. <laughs> That's what the visor's <laughs> all about, right? Look, augmented reality in the 90s. 
I think the pandemic's also taught us that, I mean, I mean, there are, there are other things that we, that we think perhaps are less vital that it turns out can become vital, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I need to get groceries shipped to my house because I can't, you know, someone can't leave because, you know, they're too vulnerable clinically to actually yeah. really risk mm-hmm. going to the supermarket. That's essentially now become a really essential service for them, right? Oh, yeah, even, all of a sudden. The, I, I ended up talking to organizations that had not unified their purchasing and return process from in-store to online. So the stores had inventory, but you couldn't buy it online and you couldn't go to the store because the stores mm-hmm. were closed because they, you know, two different teams had built it. So, you know, it's all those little mis- things you've done along the way, just not actual, you know, one team built the software for the on- for the online product, one team built the software for the in-store product, never got around to merging the two. And all of a sudden, here we were in a situation where it's like, people need this these products, like this is serious. And you you're broken because of a dumb software thing? Because they didn't do an integration test. Well, or just, you know, wasn't important. Yeah. If all the products were selling, who cares? Yeah, but even things like, you know, if, if I've got an app on my phone to get a to get a taxi, right, or I get a cab, mm-hmm. right? Actually, you know, that can be a situation where if that doesn't work for you, you may be in a very vulnerable place or position, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been, you know, in situations with uh, small small children, and we've been, you know, out somewhere, effectively, you wanted to get them home, right? And, and you suddenly discover you can't get service on something. And that's actually become, that turns from, Something that basically is an annoyance into quite a drama for you, um, and and I think that we we underestimate, you know, as the world built gets more and more built on software and becomes more and more dependent on the the dream we've kind of sold them. I've yeah. had that exact same issue, uh, not because of lack of service, but because there were no Uber drivers or Lyft drivers in the area uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, and we we've actually been stranded at places for hours because there's you know we thought we could count on that service, mm. but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, but I think you know, but we, I I think the problem is, of course, uh, I think it was Bruce and I once said I think he was talking about basically you know the de- the dying of newspapers, and he said you know you were promised the future, you weren't promised that it would be better. And I think we, we, we don't <laughs> always think through um, the house of cars that we're potentially constructing, right? Yeah. And we're only mm-hmm. as strong as our weakest link. Mm-hmm. But I'll also, I mean, and if I think there's a recurring theme in this episode, it's like, you listen, you're not your customer. Yeah. Your customer uses your product differently. Your product is more important to your customer or is important to your customer in a way that's not like you. You are not your customer. And so if you're not listening to them, if you're not actually, you're missing out on what your product's actually about. Just because you built it doesn't, you know, doesn't mean you own it really. Ultimately, once it's out in the world, like any piece of creation, once it's out in the world, the people interacting with it are as, have as much to do with it as you did. I, I mean, I learned a really important lesson when I was a very uh, junior developer and I um, was fortunate enough in that era really to, you were kind of more quite soup to nuts. So I went out on site uh, when it was, Kind of be deployed to the first um, site, and people it was, it was early on, early days of kind of auto, office automation, and people were just really doing data entry. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite a simple app for a junior uh, engineer to build something that was just you know let fields they could enter the data in, click OK, move on to the next one, a little bit of validation so they didn't get things wrong. And I sat down with the the crew that were basically doing all the data entry, uh, and quite rapidly they gave me a few piece of feedback that I'd never thought about which was that essentially I, I hadn't really thought about tabbing, right, and tab order. 
And I was making their life misery because those people worked really fast and were tabbing between fields the whole time. Uh, And the tab order was basically, for them, dictated by what was on the paper form that they were entering. And that simple thing, I I was making their their every moment painful. And I, you know, as a junior dev, I've got some validation on there. You you can't enter dates that are basically, you know, the the crazy. But it's kind of like, doesn't really help us. What really helps us is the fact that the tab order matches the field order on basically the, p- the paper document, right? Yeah. Inter- interesting different set of priorities. And, and of course, the moment you see it, you get it. But you got to go see it. So are, are we kind of stuck in this development practice now? Like TDD has been around a while, DDD, like yeah. this whole genre. Like are we looking for a new term, a new name, a new practice? It's interesting, right? Because Dan North, you know, renamed it Behavior Driven Development. But then that went mm-hmm. away and became something I think quite different. It, it's become a really a full kind of agile approach to delivering software now, BDD. Um, I don't know whether – I think we are at a moment where um, uh, TDD is uh, – has kind of got people who 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 are in favor and also some people who dislike it enough that you can kind of present back and say, um, I think many of the problems that you are uh, afflicted with are due to the fact that you're using the wrong technique here. You're not actually doing TDD. You're doing it testing. The reason you're finding it difficult to get this nail into the wall and you keep complaining basically that nails are rubbish is because you're using the screwdriver. Yeah, and, yeah. hey, let me hand you a hammer, right? Uh, and so I think we are at an opportune moment when we can begin to really reverse uh, some of the muddier thinking here. And uh, it, it's once you do it, it's 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 one of the keys to this kind of more XP movement. People talk about other sets of problems like you know overuse of patterns when it's unnecessary, etc. That kind of thing. Once you get into this <laughs> model of TDD, it becomes clearer because you can say, well, I've got this green passing test. It tells me what I need to do to to solve the problem, but it's rubbish. But now I understand the context. I can figure out, do these patterns really apply here? Do I need those to help clean this code up? So many of these other conversations that I see emerging on Twitter this whole time saying, is this pattern valuable or is this pattern actually been negative because people have, have gone away and implemented it without thought? Something like this technique can say, hey, well, I can tell you the answer in the green phase as to whether you're going to need it. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. now it's a target for your refactoring or not, depending on what, on, because now the co- you, know, you know the context better now, right? We have a comment from uh, Neil who says, one of the biggest problems for grokking TDD is the lack of meaty examples. The contrived money example is great, but it's hard to apply in one's real projects. Mm. And that's very true. I think that, um, you know, that there is this difficulty that says, these contrived examples don't help you because they don't, they fall apart when you hit kind of real problems like, well, what do I do with the IO, right? Yeah. Like every hello world example. Yeah. I yeah. definitely agree with that. I, I think the answer probably in, it is more, I mean, internally, I recommend you do kind of catters, right? And explore doing TDD a lot in this technique until it becomes kind of more, you, you say, okay, I, I'm going to really push myself for this two hours to do it this way. Um, and then uh, you learn new kind of muscle memory that helps you then apply to wider stuff. I think there's another answer really, which uh, um, is, you know, people doing streaming and stuff more. So um, uh, and Twitch streaming and stuff to actually uh, do more demonstration of trying to solve problems around lar- larger projects. It, right. It's always this problem of if I have a complex enough domain to be real, I have to spend the domain to you as part of what I'm doing. But I think maybe that may be what some of the answer of how we actually solve some of this, this training problem is showing more solid examples of 
working in the star with bigger domain spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, part of me wonders if it's just that when you actually get into the meat of really understanding software being built this way, it's now so complex, you can't explain it meaningfully. Like, it, that's hard too. And you also pretty quickly dive into some proprietary aspects. Like, I've, one of the things I've found in really well-architected apps, uh, apps is that the secret sauce is abundantly clear, like the value proposition of software. And that's often things that leadership is uh, pretty protective mm. of. Also, one of the things you said was don't use mocks. And mm. so I guess that means you can't really test anything that has service dependencies yeah, uh, so with unit testing. Test. So that's not the right test for something that uses a service. So the generally there are three, I mean, Ken outlines three cases where you might want to use mocks, right? So one is a shared fixture, like a database or a file system, where one test can affect the other, right? And that's to do right. with basically two tests interfering. Other yeah. is it's slow to talk to, so it's over a network. Um, and the other is it's fragile to talk to, right? Um, and those are the three cases. That, that's, that, that's where he says you use mocks to replace those things. Yeah. Um, I think if you have a decent use of a layered architecture, that helps because you can say, well, those things are actually outside this layer, right? I'm just focusing on my domain, and I don't worry too much about those. Um, okay. And I then tend to use other techniques, the kind of more the, the test after a unit test for, for testing those. I, I feel they're better. So, for, ex for example, if your data comes from an API endpoint, you could make an NPI endpoint that returns data that you can test against and use that for your test. Yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's an okay use of a, of a, of a mock because I'm really yeah. substituting for something that's fragile, uh, slow, or uh, right, multiple right. tests are going to impact, right? But it's not but this class-to-class -class dependency thing that, that, that became the, the kind of mantra of the people who, who treated this as a kind of obsession. Plus, you could also like put some in, intentional delays in your API, you know, to, to sort of simulate what happens if this takes too long. I guess, I guess is a way to look at this, what the problems I solve with mocks are the, are going to be replaced with problems with integration later. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. What we don't want to really solve are problems where two classes are collaborating and I want to mock one out of those collaborators, right? Right. Don't Which means I'm now presuming their piece is going to work this way and I put it in the mock and I'm invariably wrong. Yeah. And generally, in a lot of cases, it's an implementation detail. Your public surface area of your module doesn't need that. It's, mm. it's something you built as a result of refactoring to clean up your green code. You've got this small class that does this thing, has a single responsibility. It helps you mm. as a developer mm. to understand and manage that code. But the for the consumer of your code, that's just additional complexity they don't really want to know about because it doesn't help them answer the question of how do I use your code. Right. I get it. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. So what's new for you, Ian? What's next? What's in your inbox? Uh, in my inbox. We're trying to get V9 of Brighter, the open source project I work on. It helps you do messaging really between two services out the door. We got a bit delayed. Mm -hmm. We had a couple of people who had um, a paternity leave. So uh, one of them, uh, I don't, you guys know Toby Henderson? I can't remember. You met him uh, ever? I think you might have. I think he sounds familiar. Him. I don't yeah. think we've had him on the show, um, but I no. think he's been at the event. Took a, took a good slug off uh, to look after his... A child. Um, uh, so we, we got slowed down a bit by that. But, um, uh, but, but that's, I think, a very positive thing in this day and age, right? Taking, you know, your, your, your very fair share of, uh, childcare, uh, responsibilities when a child is young. So, yeah. um, but yeah, so, um, V9 is going to have some, um, better support for what we call outboxes and inboxes. So 
really stuff that essentially helps make sure that the message is delivered or removes duplicates. We've got some rewrites of um, our Kafka and our SNS and SQS from AWS kind of providers make them more robust. Mm-hmm. And we actually, I mean, transports are for the to, it, transports are kind of a, an inter- interface that you implement, and they're fairly straightforward. And we, but none of the core team were actually on Azure, so we never really had one for Azure Service Bus, which is a huge hole. Um, and we knew people had written them, and they were out there. And we we're like, can we have one, right? And of course, mm-hmm. if people were like, oh, it's a proprietary secret, my boss won't let me. Reveal it. We've got one back in now, so we've got one we know runs in production uh, at scale. Nice. And that's going to come out hopefully in the V9 as well. So people, all the people on Azure don't have to roll your own anymore, right? We've actually got someone to, to contribute one back to the project, which is a big win for us, I think. Um, what we wanted, we always want to try and avoid is ones that are speculative. We don't know somebody's actually tested this code and run it in production. That's one of our kind of guarantees. And so that's been really good for us. We got that one back in. So that's, that's, that's what I'm doing there. Very Other good. Other than that, yeah. I mean, I still, I've got to focus, though, I think, for me, on that kind of messaging side, um, yeah. microservices, domains, etc. Cool. Well, uh, Ian Cooper, it's been a pleasure. It always is a pleasure. Always learn something. Always have some new perspective on stuff. And uh, thanks again for being on .NET Rocks today. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a